Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This summer, I've been running an occasional series of interviews with authors who have written about the question of how to intervene in or respond to mass atrocities. The interview we're about to do isn't really, at least not strictly, part of that series. And yet, in a different kind of way, It's going to focus again on the question of how to respond to a mass atrocity, but from a very different angle. My guest today is Noah Schenker. Noah is the author of the new book, Reframing Holocaust Testimony. The book makes a powerful plea to recognize the importance of institutional procedures and priorities when evaluating Holocaust testimonies. Noah applies his background in memory and media studies to examine three major institutional repositories of Holocaust testimonies. His conclusions challenge us to rethink the way we relate to these testimonies and to testimonies collected from other cases of mass atrocities. It's an impressive work, one which I'm looking forward to discussing. And so, with that, Noah, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks, Kelly. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, I always like to, to, to give guests a, a chance to talk a little bit about how they came to be who they are. And, and so why don't we start? Um, how, how did you end up deciding to become an academic? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, <clears throat> when I was a young kid, um, I grew up in a, in a family of, well, not having any academics per se. My grandfather was a rabbi uh, in the Reformed mm-hmm. Jewish movement. And every Shabbat or every high holiday service, I remember going to hear him uh, give uh, a sermon on whatever the topic was for that uh, portion of the Torah. But it was always politically uh, Tinge. He was someone who was involved um, with the civil rights movement, someone who was involved with teaching uh, at universities, even though he didn't have a Ph.D. Um, and I just remember being incredibly moved by um, his form of, of speech from his engagement in politics and in history. And so even though I didn't have any academics growing up, it, it always seemed to be an example for me. And so I remember when I went to uh to college, um, I have to keep on reminding myself to not refer to it as university as I'm speaking to a, an American audience, <laughs> and I'm not speaking to my colleagues here in Australia. If I was to say college, they think I'm referring to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when I went to college, um, the first course I ever took, uh, the two, two, two of the most I think, important classes I ever took were in my freshman year, if not three of the most important classes that I ever took were at a small um, kind of residential college in the University of Michigan, and they had a course called "On Listening to Holocaust Survivors," which was taught by Henry Greenspan, who um, has written quite extensively in Holocaust testimony. And the other class was a class called um, "Visual Culture in Weimar Germany," and the other class was on psychoanalytic approaches to literature. Mm-hmm. So even though these were really incredibly intimidating classes for an eighteen your old to be taking, especially the psychoanalytic oh, yeah. approaches to literature. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, into 
using Lacan to analyze withering heights is enough to send someone running for the hills. But uh, it gave me at least a first taste for um, the ways in which, you know, media mattered, um, the way whether it was literature or film or testimonies. And I never anticipated going into academia. It was always to be a lawyer or to work in, in politics or in government. Uh, and then eventually in film. And so when I ended up working out of college at a public relations firm and surprise, surprise, became disenchanted with that world, I, uh, worked as a, I worked as a production assistant for some um, low-budget films and some huh. commercials that were being uh, created and produced in Chicago. Um, and I ended up really enjoying that environment. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll apply to film school, become a producer. And so I ended up moving to Los Angeles and going to film school at USC uh, in Los Angeles, moving there, not knowing the soul and thinking I would study critical studies, which was the history and theory aspect of the of the school, not the production, not the screenwriting or directing um, portion of the school. And um, just because I wanted to make this network of people who I could then you know, foster a sense of community and work in production there. And, and in the course of taking these classes um, on critical studies, you know, reading theory and reading the history of film and media really became enthralled with it. And I never looked back. Um, and, and so just the idea that one could become a, an academic um, in film and media studies was something that was completely foreign to me. And I, I fell in love with it pretty quickly. And so now you identify yourself in part as, as somebody who does memory studies. How, how did that transition happen? Well, I mean, initially I thought I was going to be a film uh, scholar because I had, yeah. had gone to USC where the names of Spielberg and Lucas are on mm. on every building in the film school and Zemeckis and Howard and, and those names. And uh, I initially wanted to write about the ways in which um, filmmakers like Spielberg with Schindler's List were representing mm -hmm. the Holocaust and became interested mm -hmm. in the history of Holocaust representation as a potential area for a dissertation topic. It was between that or the films of Joel Schumacher, I decided <laughs> to, uh, you know, I could have been minding the depths of St. Almost Fire, uh, my argument that he's the new, uh, you know, uh, Vincente Minnelli, but in the end, I, I thought perhaps Spielberg was a more viable option. And um, but in that time, in a in a methods class I was taking, they the 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 professor Professor Tara McPherson took us to the back lot of Universal Studios in uh, in, in Studio City, just over the hills from LA, hmm. to look at this project that had started not long ago to collect testimonies of Holocaust survivors. And it was the Spielberg uh, project, which was at the time the survivors of the Shoah visual history. Um, uh, so, you know, it had uh, this very long kind of unmanageable title at that point. And we'll just re refer to it as the Shoah Foundation, but mm -hmm. the survivors of the Shoah visual history uh, project at that point. And I, I became really, interested in the work that they were doing and, and some of the, the ways in which Spielberg as a filmmaker and the particular sets of uh, tropes 
you know, or that is to say kind of representational uh, strategies that he would use in film were then spilling over into, into this testimony process. And, uh, that became really not only a question of, of film, but issues of testimony, which are inevitably, needless to say, issues of memory. And so my, my entry into memory studies came through testimony through my first encounter with the, with the Shoah Foundation testimonies there. Um, and then as my work progressed and working with, um, advisors at the time at USC, like Marita Sturkin, and then having the great fortune of working with Janet Walker at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who became a member of my committee, uh, the, the, the work, um, that I was doing ended up going in the direction of memory and trauma. And I was very, really, really fortunate to be working with scholars who were expert in those areas. And it just seemed as if you're going to do work on testimony, you can't do that without engaging the work of memory, engaging the work of trauma. So um, that's that's how I got into memory studies, and I've never left. So so let's turn to the book. Um, and there's some just two or three terms that you use throughout the book that I thought I'd ask you just to talk about and define briefly. Um, the first is testimonial literacy. What, what do you mean by that, and why is it so important? For me, I, I remember um, when I was doing a, a fellowship at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. in 2006 uh, and 2007, and uh, I was doing archival research, just looking at the institutional protocols of the museum and how they were shaping the collection of testimony as well as the display of testimony. And I was working alongside historians who were really interested in testimony and also with educators who were really interested in testimony in terms of its content, mm. um, especially in the, the, the part of historians at that time. So I would often hear, um, though interestingly, in the case of the Holocaust Museum, they did have transcripts for many of the testimonies recorded there. I would often hear something along the, along the lines of, if only we had the full transcript as if the reading of the the transcript of a testimony constitutes the content, constitutes mm. the the textuality of testimony. And for me, uh, I'm someone who believes in duration and in the process of a close reading and a close looking and a close listening um, and all the various sensory engagements that we have to bring with testimony. And uh, that means being attuned to the silences, that means being attuned to what's happening on camera, the, the ways in which the subject, that is the witness, is framed by the camera, whether it's a medium close-up or an intense close-up or a long shot. Are there gestures where are the uh, tattoos on the left arms of an Auschwitz survivor present on screen? Um, do they have um, various ways of uh, accenting or accentuating particular phrases. So when I mean testimonial literacy, it, it means an eye and an ear um, for the kinds of performance that a, that a witness will bring to the table. But that also means an eye and an ear for the setup of the camera and the kinds of questions that are being asked. Really reading testimony as a text in its you know physical ways, in its sense in its olfactory ways, the ways that smell functions, the way that um, what's happening off camera um, influences and is often is as important as what's happening on camera. Um, and, and so that's 
really the the idea of not taking for granted that these testimonies are mediated rather than these raw sources. And and I think for for a lot of scholars in the kind of the early stages of discussing testimony talked about testimony either as raw capsules of memory or as works that were to be interpreted or analyzed as literary texts. Um, and I felt that they have their own media specificity. And so mm. what testimonial literacy means is to essentially be attuned to what those specificities are and the way they function and how they shape meaning in, 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 in a witness's exchange with their interlocutor. So the second term is, is, is post-memory. What, what does that mean? Well, post-memory is a term that I can't claim any credit right. for. Um, that would be a term that I um, have to attribute to and have attributed to um, Marlena Hirsch from Columbia University in, in her work, which has just been incredibly foundational um, to, the, to the field of not only of Holocaust studies, but to memory studies more broadly. And by post-memory, she means lots of things. Um, first, it's reference to this notion, not a notion, I mean, it's the, the reality that the population of Holocaust survivors is dwindling, that um, given that Elie Wiesel um, died just this summer, um, and the fact that he was this iconic survivor, in many ways he was the quote-unquote survivor, or the survivor, mm-hmm. um, what do we do um, as that survivor community is dwindling? How will the memory that resides with living survivors be transmitted beyond their living presence through testimonies, through new media, but not only through that, but through graphic novels like Mouse, through films like Schindler's List or Shoah or the films of Peter Forgosh or others. So how, how does that memory get transmitted beyond the living survivor to first, um, sorry, to second generation, to third generations, to those who have um, familial connections to the survivor, but also beyond to those who have no familial connection to the Holocaust and also to those who have no connection to the Holocaust whatsoever. How do we follow the various paths of memory beyond its living presence? And to realize that it's not a matter, let's say in contrast to this, um, it's not a matter of transmitting memory as if through a, as if through a, uh, a, a, uh, a needle into a patient, right? Mm. That it's not something that's transmitted raw and unfettered and unmediated, but rather something that is, um, creates or generates the effects in the case of a traumatic memory without claiming to, um, appropriate the trauma of, of that, that had been set, of, of those who had experienced it firsthand. So there's been a lot of, you know, if the New York Times writes about it, it must be a phenomenon, right? Well, um, you know, so there's a lot of writing about, though I don't, though I'm not a, under the belief at all that it's a phenomenon of any, you know, extensive nature, which is the, this idea that at one point a few years ago, the New York Times wrote a piece of, about uh, the children and grandchildren of survivors having tattooed their left arms with the same mm. numbers that their Auschwitz surviving grandparents had inscribed on their arm. Um, there was a film called Numbered, which was about this very phenomenon. And though I don't think it's widespread, in fact, on the contrary, I think it's very limited, there is, um, there are organizations that I've been asked to consult on and I've declined that 
that ask the second and third generation of Holocaust um, victims, that is to say their children and grandchildren and survivors, to give the testimony of their parents or grandparents as if they were their parents or grandparents. And mm-hmm. in places like Hiroshima, you have the creation of these memory docents where victims of Hiroshima are training docents to tell their memories after they're gone. So this is a, a really concrete um, issue. And um, and for me and, and for Mariana Hirsch, it's a question of, of theorizing that, not as an appropriative thing, but as something that can actually lead to new knowledge and that, that ultimately recognizes that there's a difference right, between the primary victim and those who take on their stories through different representational strategies, through art, through poetry, through literature, through film, and through testimony. But it doesn't, it's not simply something that's transmitted and whole, um, but rather it's the effects and the questions um, that are raised by that process and the gaps between an individual who survived firsthand and those who work with and interpret and, and engage with their stories after the fact. So that's, in essence, some of the key questions behind post-memory. And then the last distinction, or the last terms with a distinction, and again, this is one you borrow and use to great effect. Um, what do you mean by uh, common memory and deep memory, and what's the distinction between them? Yeah, it's a term that originates with uh, Charlotte Delbo, and which then gets picked up by Lawrence Langer, and after that by Charlotte Friedlander, and others who discussed it, um, such as James Young and others. So it's it's a it's a term that's that's widely discussed. Um, the idea being that if we take a uh, a Holocaust survivor, um, and we'll just say an example would be Chaim Engel, who was a survivor of the Camp Sobibor. Uh, and who I know we'll be discussing, we'll be discussing his wife at a later point in the interview. Um, he he was discussed in the work of Lawrence Langer. Um, to use an example, if we're talking about Chaim Engel's time uh, in Sobibor, uh, sorting the clothes of the victims, um, the idea would be the notion of common memory, Chaim giving his testimony, uh, at the Fortunoff archive in the mid-1980s, there's Chaim, as he is at that moment, looking back on the events of the 1940s, and there's the Chaim of the 1980s who can look back um, with somewhat of a safe distance, the distance of time, say, this is what happened then, that there is often at least a clear um, linear or if not linear, at least some sort of reconstruction of what happened over a course of time with a series of events, but that to use a term or to borrow a term or a phrasing by Shaw Friedlander, when memory comes, in this case when traumatic memory comes, when deep memory comes, it is the collapsing of that kind of temporal I am here that was then, that was there. It's a collapse of that. Uh, it's this notion that deep memory marks the return to the past and an inability. Basically, it is the, the emergence of the past in the present, or you could look at it the other way, or the return of the past uh, into the present or traveling back to the past from the present, that it is a moment in which these temporal uh, delineations collapse where the deep 
traumatic memory emerges and the survivor finds her himself back at that moment um, and often um, unable to articulate a clear kind of causal you know, chronology. Um, it's that breakdown in the ability uh, to, to tell things in a transitive manner. Um, it is, in essence, it is often marked by silence. It's often marked by uh, an inability to communicate or to render in, into to words that are comprehensible that which is incomprehensible. Um, and, and that's really the challenge that people like Friedlander have raised is how do we, in the absence of survivors, after survivors have passed, how will you preserve that deep memory, that memory which can't be easily unified, which exists in excess of historical narrative? That is, it can't be said this happened here mm-hmm. then, and this is the reasons and the causes, right? That it exists outside of that trajectory. Um, and how do we preserve those moments, those moments where the story breaks down, the moment when the individual subject breaks down, potentially, and when their story is, is in an excess of what is possible to communicate, when it is so traumatic that it can't be rendered adequately into words, that sometimes it, it registers in ways that are more difficult to read. So so you looked at three different institutions in, in, in this book. Yep. Uh, the Fortunoff Archive, the, the Holocaust Museum in the U.S., um, and then the Shoah Foundation. Yes, correct. Um, and you identified several, uh, 13, 14, something like that, interviewees who had been interviewed by each one. And so I thought maybe the place to start here is to ask you to talk a little bit about the testimonies of, and you referred to earlier, Selma E., um, and, and talk a little bit about how those testimonies differed from from case to case. Selma's, Selma's testimony or testimonies... Um, are probably the most powerful testimonies um, that I've um, had the privilege of watching. Um, not that there's a hierarchy, but for whatever reason, they, they, they made a lasting impact on me, as did those of her husband, Chaim, who I made reference to earlier. When I um, first watched, I ended up watching them believe in sequence so that my first encounter with Selma was in her first testimony that was given at the Fortunoff Archive, which is housed at Yale University, and it was recorded in 1980. So on a research trip, I went to the Fortunoff Archive, and I asked to see the videotape um, for her testimony. Um, And I looked at her testimony, which was recorded in 1980. And what I remember was just the rawness and the immediacy is, even though I'm hesitant to use words like raw and immediacy, Mm -hmm. after I just talked about the ways in which testimony is mediated, (laughs) there was something incredibly um, powerful about her. A, because the, the camera was a bit more free flowing, as I recall, and my memory might be misguided in this respect, but there was a, she had, at this point, it had been um, 35 years after uh, liberation, um, and, or over 35 years after liberation, 
And so she still has this, this physical, um, presence that's incredibly strong. And she's, she has the agency and she takes upon herself this agency to communicate with the, the kind of directness and a, um, a strength that, um, is, is really noticeable. And she's talking about things that are a very unique historical nature, given that she's a survivor of Soviet War, having survived, having taken part, having taken part in the, in the uprising there and having successfully escaped. As you know, very few people actually successfully right. survived the escape from uh, the Soviet War death camp. Um, and there's just an urgency in the way that she spoke and an eloquence in the way that she spoke and the ways in which she was able to reflect not only on what she had experienced, but how in the moment of 1980, and this is really important, she was given the space and took the space in 1980 to reflect on the ways in which that memory, as she was recalling it in 1980, impacted her at the moment of its telling. It wasn't simply about conveying the details of the past. It was also about the ways in which that past was very much alive in her present moment. Mm -hmm. And and that was really palatable. Um, so when I went to go look at her testimony at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and that was recorded in 1990, so this is 10 years after her initial testimony at the Fortunoff Archive, I noticed that that urgency, while still there, and the urgency was never lost with her. I I've never had the privilege of meeting Selma in person. Um, and, but there's an insistence there, a, a strength and determination there that comes throughout all of her testimonies. But at the second testimony that she gave in sequence, this is 10 years after the first Fortune Up archive, she gives one at the Holocaust Museum in 1990. There's something a bit more, um, constrained about her, not about her herself, but by the nature of the interview. Um, she, she talks a great deal um, about and is asked a great deal about the nature of the up, uprising at Sobibor, the details about how she first met um, Chaim there, her husband, who would then become her husband, details about um, the escape from Sobibor. She spent a great deal of the interview um, talking about the content of the past and less about the ways in which that past continues or continued at that point to resonate with her um, psychically. And um, so that was really noticeable. By the time I looked at her testimonies to the Shoah Foundation, I discovered by sheer accident, and as we know, doing archival work is a series of happy accidents. And I, I noticed that she'd given not one, but two testimonies at the Holocaust Museum, one in uh, 1995 and an earlier point, sorry, at a later point in 1998. And there was no firm explanation that was given to me for that, though I later learned after the fact some of the reasoning for it, which was the, the first one was so terrible, uh, mm -hmm. so ridden with... Um, questions on the part of the interviewer that Selma was not allowed any space whatsoever um, to get into uh, the rhythm of 
the testament or to be left to give any agency in discussing what had happened to her. But what was mm-hmm. interesting was that uh, two things came out of that interview and the subsequent interview in 1998, which never came up in the interviews prior, that is to say in the Portionoff archive and in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Holocaust Museum, which is even though she had mentioned in both of those earlier two testimonies that she had traveled uh, to Holland after living in Poland and on, on the way on a boat um, stopping over in Odessa that her and Chaim had a young son and that the young son died. Um, and there was reference made to that in 1990, sorry, 1980. There was reference made to that in 1990. And while there was reference to that, the name of the child was never mentioned. Hmm. And it's not until 19... 95 that any mention of the child is brought into the conversation and that's brought into the conversation by the interviewer and it's only in that interview in 1995 that we also learn that Selma was a victim of sexual assault at no other point in any of the earlier testimonies that were taken in 1980 nor 1990 do we learn that and these two events the loss of her son who we learn was named Emile, and her sexual assault while in Holland, her family owned a hotel. Um, Those are foundational events, and events that she um, had not been given the space or perhaps had not felt comfortable to articulate at the the earlier stages of her earlier testimonies, but they come out much later. I think that says a lot about the passage of time but I also think it says a lot about the methodologies of the respective institutions which collected her testimony. Well, let's look at those institutions, and let's start with the Fortunoff Archive. And, and, and I, I think we've got maybe five, six minutes for each one of these individual cases. So I know that we'll, we'll miss a lot of detail, and I encourage listeners to go, go read the book. Um, it has a lot of really fascinating stuff in it. Um, but with the Fortunoff Archive, so, so where did this come from? Well, the Fortune Off Archive came, um, it emerged really as a grassroots effort. Um, it emerged out of New Haven, Connecticut, the Jewish community of New Haven. Um, it uh, emerged as really the, the, as a response in large part to what many in that Jewish community, and frankly, what many in the Jewish community uh, nationwide, if not on a, you know, at a global scale, found as a, uh, to be played a disenchantment with the popularization of Holocaust memory, particularly through the miniseries Holocaust mm. um, that came out in the late 1970s. Um, many in the New Haven Jewish community felt that that film had trivialized um, the, the experiences of the Holocaust. Elie Wiesel had mm. written um, a piece, you know, harshly critiquing that, uh, that film that miniseries. And, and it was a time of, of mobilization in survivor communities in the United States. Um, so gr- having grown up not far from Skokie, Illinois, having gone to Jewish day school in Skokie, Illinois, um, which used to house the largest per capita survivor community outside of Israel until somewhat recently supplanted by my current home in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, <laughs> You know, survivor activism was in the 1970s um, really on a rise, and um, to to 
whether it was in the form of trying and successfully stopping the march of neo-Nazis on Skokie and having successfully um, lobbied President Jimmy Carter for the mandate for the creation of a Holocaust museum, which was successful in the 1970s. And then I think this film, or I should say this miniseries on NBC, um, Holocaust and miniseries, really was a um, an important turning point for trying to counter that trivialization of, of Holocaust memory through the creation of something that was more grassroots, but also much more attuned to um, the, the truth and um, experiences and to the respect and sanctity of, of, of Holocaust survivors. And so the Shoah, sorry, the Portionoff Archive emerged out of the work of the psychoanalyst and uh, and uh, child survivor Dory Laub and the television producer um, Laurel Block, uh, who, based out of New Haven, created what would then be, later become the Fortunoff Archive. And that archive um, was from the outset, and with the later work of um, Jeffrey Hartman, uh, who recently passed away, who was a, a survivor of the Kindertransport, um, and a faculty member at, at Yale, and then later, uh, later on through the work of Lawrence Langer as an interviewer. But even from the onset, the focus was always on making sure that the survivor and the agency of survivors was first and foremost, that survivors would be given the leeway to drive the testimony process, that mm-hmm. as much respect and as much, um, latitude was given to them not and by respect I don't mean not that they wouldn't be engaged critically on the contrary critical engagement was at the heart of that enterprise and remains to be at the heart of that enterprise but rather that contrary to imposing a a rigid um, census-like series of questions and an extensive pre-interview process that would in essence deem a testimony redundant the focus was on allowing the survivor the space to drive the pro- to drive the interview as much as possible, and that meant being respectful to the silences, being attuned to the silences. To use Dory Laub's term, to be a co-owner in the process of testimony, to realize that you are sharing, um, in essence, a special contract with the witness, and that there's a special set of obligations which are ethical in nature which means also recognition that you are not the survivor and that you are not experiencing their trauma, but you are still responsible for helping them uh, facilitate an expression of that trauma. And it's not about psychoanalysis. The, it's not a, this is not an analytical environment. This is a testimonial environment, but it's still one that is geared and influenced by um, a respect for the traumas that had been experienced by the by the witness and making sure that the witness is the one who is really guiding or driving the process rather than the interviewer driving the process. So rather than starting a question or an interview with a question such as, please give me your name, where were you born, uh, what was the town um, like in which you were born, you will have a question often along the lines of, there is a picture of the past paint me that picture. And I'm paraphrasing, but there are questions yeah. such as that. Um, if your 
memory is a picture book. What is the first picture that you see? Something that is more evocative of along those lines, something that also generates questions that are, are geared towards the process of telling the testimony as well as about the content of that testimony. Um, and so that's, that was always uh, an essential part of that process. And because it's an academic institution in which it's housed, you have to go to the office or so the Department of Special Collections to look at testimonies that was until the portion of archive recently digitized their testimonies and are making them available outside of the Sterling Library. For most of its history, you had to go and travel to New Haven. There was no online access. There were no videotapes being sent to you in the mail. You had to go there, and it meant putting in the time and the labor to identify the testimony and to um, to really do the work in advance of preparing for that encounter. And so even the mood in which that testimony was made available to you involved work and involved a sense of responsibility, involved a sense of having to carry a great deal um, with you into that process, even as a viewer of the testimony. Um, and so there was a great deal, I think, placed on the sanctity of the survivor's experience. And that's also reflected in the fact that um, in the Holocaust Museum, um, and I'm not revealing, I'm not compromising her, her, her identity in the sense that Selma Engel is Selma Engel in the Holocaust Museum and is Selma Engel in the Shoah Foundation, yeah. but she is Selma E. Mm-hmm. in the Fortune of Archive. So using the first name and last initials the, 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 to protect the the identity of the survivor. So the, so the Holocaust Museum um, has a very different mission. Um, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what, what Congress um, established for the mission, as the mission of the Holocaust Museum and, and how that came to be embodied most in, in the permanent exhibition, which you call the soul of the... Or I, that's not fair. You quote... Uh, one of the uh, leaders of the initial founding of the museum is saying is the soul of the museum. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the mandate for the museum was to be a living memorial um, to the Holocaust, but also as part of that mandate included um, part of the planning. And I, and I spent really just you know months coming through the various institutional archives. It's also create um, what what initially was called the committee conscious, um, which was um, to ostensibly raise awareness of other conflicts, potentially other genocides that were happening in the world after the Holocaust. So even from the outset, there was a mission to commemorate and preserve the memory of the Holocaust on one hand, but also to draw attention to any potential genocides that would take place after the establishment of the museum. So the permanent exhibition, or the PE, has changed very little over the past, uh, since it's, since it's opening in, in 1993. Um, the permanent exhibition that traverses the floors of the Holocaust Museum was intended to have a core narrative structure a three-act structure, in essence. What was life like briefly uh, leading up to uh, the rise of Nazis to power um, before the Holocaust? Then there is the Holocaust era, and then there is liberation and and life after the Holocaust. And so that three-act structure, um, which is instrumental to many of the testimonies that I'm looking at, 
including the Shoah Foundation testimonies, was also central to the creation of the permanent exhibition at the Holocaust Museum. The idea, um, and it was a contentious idea uh, from the beginning, was, well, who will be the central victims in this story? Uh, what about uh, what about the Romani people, the Roma and the Sinti? Uh, what, you know, and that became a contested issue. And so which victim group would be given more or less representation? Ultimately, it is a a permanent exhibition that is focused on Jewish victims of Nazism. And though there have been related uh, temporary exhibits, the permanent exhibition is at its core um, about the Jewish experience of the Holocaust. And when they refer to the soul or the permanent exhibition as the soul of the museum, there was the sense and that they had to, to enshrine um, not simply through um, artifacts, but also through a narrative strategy, through interactive learning, through photographs, through um, as many different objects as they could collect or get on loan from places like Maidanek or places from Auschwitz and other places, that they could give you a, an experientially impactful Experience. They didn't want it to be, quote, a cold museum. They wanted it to be a hot museum, something that would get the blood flowing on the part of the, on the part of the, the patrons, that would move patrons on an emotional level. And so at the heart of the, the Holocaust Museum was this challenge of trying to balance the effective with the analytical demands of representing the Holocaust. And it was something that was labored over, I mean, because if we have museum mandate established in the 1970s and it doesn't open until 1993, a great deal of time passes where the content committee and other committees that were part of, of the commission were really debating vigorously. I mean, just to give you one anecdote that's been also chronicled in the work of Edward Linenthal, Preserving Memory, which is a fantastic book, whether or not to include hair which was taken from women prior to their processing at Auschwitz the hair was given to the museum. Uh, that museum debated as to whether or not they should put it on display. Ultimately, um, it was decided that for various reasons, including the fact that one of the members of the content committee who was a survivor herself felt that it was disrespectful, that it was counter to religious tradition, and that what if the hair of her mother was in that pile of hair? And so ultimately they, 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 took a photo of the hair, and that photo, a, a mural of that hair is on display, a photo mural of that hair is on display in the museum, but not the hair itself, which was initially put into storage and is no longer actually with the museum. So those kinds of debates about what constitutes, like how far should the museum go in tapping into the emotive, effective aspects of the, of, of the Holocaust experience, and what, what are the barriers? And this, and in some instances, quite literally, what are the barriers? So placing barriers, visual barriers, so that so that young visitors to the museum or more sensitive viewers to the museum do not have to go through um, instituting literal barriers for younger uh, visitors to the museum or for older visitors to the museum who might have certain sensitivities about graphic images. So the idea of barriers, uh, literal barriers, figurative uh, barriers that happen in terms of um, discussions um, in committee meetings about what should and should not be shown, 
are really um, instrumental to that debate. So even though it, it's emphasis on being the soul, that soul is one that has to be regulated, one that's calibrated by the planners in, in a very, very detailed way. So then how do audio testimonies fit into the book? How, how does it end up, how, do, how does the museum end up seeing as it, it as at least part of their mission to amass a, a, a significant body of testimonies and how do they try and imagine using those? Well, part of the, the initial drive for them collecting testimonies in the first place was to have content uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, because in the early stages when they were still trying to envision how the museum would unfold, Part of that included the potential for using testimonies at different aspects of the permanent exhibit, uh, permanent exhibition rather. Uh, and though there are audio testimonies that are used um, within the exhibition space, and at the end, the very end of the, the the very conclusion of the permanent exhibition, there is a a film which uses first-person testimony of survivors. They initially debated a lot of different alternatives, one of which was, and this was um, one of the more fascinating ideas, was to use testimonies that they would collect with survivors and to create a a computer program that would randomly uh, project two to three minute long segments of testimonies, just at random, um, so that patrons could get a sense of the mosaic quality. Um, the 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 ephemeral quality as well of the testimonies. Ultimately, what they chose to do was to reshoot. That is, it's just an unfortunate use of term, but <laughs> cer- certain survivors who had given testimony at the archive of the Holocaust Museum, and they refilmed them mm. using less austere backgrounds, filming them in their homes, and they used it for what then became the testimony amphitheater. So initially, it was to create content for the museum. And then in the 1990s, um, when Joan Ringelheim took over the process, it was more about giving survivors an opportunity to document their stories, to give their testimonies to an interviewer. So it initially was for museum content, and then it evolved really into more of a testimonial archive along the lines of the Fortunoff archive um, in that respect. So... That was initially the drive, a drive towards content, a drive towards curating testimony. And, and that's, that's still something that they're struggling with. Um, right now they're, they have an installation of, we can discuss this at a later point if you'd like, which is kind of constitutes the future of Holocaust testimony, so to speak, which is they have a, uh, it's not quite holographic, but it uses holographic effects to render, and this is based on technology that the Shaw Foundation has uh, developed in concert with the Institute for Creative Technology, which is an artificial intelligence-driven virtual survivor, which is based huh. on having captured a survivor um, using over 2,000 questions and allowing allowing museum patrons, in this case in the Holocaust Museum, where Pincus is currently on display, and for you to interact with him, ask him questions. So there's there's always been the idea that, and this is even from the onset before this quote-unquote holographic testimony came into, into being, was using them interactively for educational programming in the, in the Wexler Learning Center, which is just outside of the permanent exhibition. So there's always an educational imperative, there's a curatorial imperative, but it wasn't initially a testimonial one. It wasn't about collecting an archive of testimonies. It, it evolved into that, mm-hmm. but that was, that was over quite a bit of time. So, so then how did that shape their, their strategies in terms of and, and, and procedures in terms of interviewing 
the, well, to give you to give you a perfect example, and, you know, in the sense that I'm not sure if you're going to, unless you want to talk about Selma at a later point. Um, yeah, I, I'm happy to return to her now. Yeah. Um, well, Selma was, as I mentioned, a survivor of the of the Soviet board camp of and of and of the uprising, and her testimony that was given in 1990 is a perfect example, I think, of the priorities of the Holocaust Museum at that point. At that point, it was directed by uh, Linda Kuzmak. She was the head of the oral history department. And it was really about making sure that content, certain historical episodes were captured and that they could be used to illustrate um, or provide illustration for aspects of the permanent exhibition or perhaps for educational modules. And so one of the most powerful moments in, in Selma's testimony, one of the most disturbing aspects really in her testimony is at the end, now they had a policy, they being a Holocaust museum of only giving two hours, uh, to, uh, interviewees. So that's two mm-hmm. tapes. And they were at the end of the, uh, second tape and the end of the tape for Selma. And at that point, they're asking Selma a series of questions um, about having moved to Israel eventually. Uh, but at no point up to this juncture in the, in the interview had they asked her about what happened to her after the war with her son, what happened to her with the death of who we will later learn is Emil. And... It, as they're running out of time, you can see the look of, of concern and anxiety and, mm. and anger on Selma's part, but they haven't gone to those questions. And the interviewer who is conferring with the producer uh, on a headset is debating, and you can hear this because they think the camera has stopped running, but it is in fact still running. Uh, and you hear them debating whether or not they're going to do another tape. And they decide ultimately not to. But as the camera is still running on that remaining tape, you hear someone say, well, that's very interesting because I lost my son. And then you see her arguing with the interview about what you didn't know that there was time was running out. In other words, they had in the course of the interview gotten to the predetermined area of focus, which was the Sobibor experience. They had mined that area. And so there was no need, as far as they were concerned at that juncture in the oral history department, to look at what her life was like after Sobibor. And yet, if you look at the transcript for that interview, the conversation that takes place between Selma, in which she expresses her anger and disappointment and there's discussion of her son, is rendered only as technical conversation. In fact, there is a term called technical conversation. So you don't actually hear none of that is transcribed. You have to look at the testimony to see what emerges at the very end, all the way to the fade to black, where the most important part of the testimony, at least as, as, as Selma articulates it, the loss of her son is not given the space for exploration. And the camera cuts out just as she begins to talk about that. And that just happens to be at the margins. It's only because I kept watching. It wasn't on the transcript. As far as the transcript was concerned, that was technical conversation. And yet, that which the institution deemed to be central, which is to say Sobibor, was in fact much more peripheral relative to the experience 
of the loss of her son Emil after the war. So the idea that an institution would impose uh, a certain focus on a historical event or on having clear beginnings, middle, and endings, those kinds of preferences um, have costs. And in this case, it's, they come at the cost of a story that is very central, an experience that is very central to Selma, and it's left at the margins. It's still articulated, it can still be found, and that's precisely why you need to have the testimonial literacy to be able to know to look beyond the transcript, to know that even when it seems that the testimony is coming to a close, just as it seems like it might fade to black, something important might flicker across the screen. So, so there's one institution left, and that's the Shoah Foundation. And, and I'm really, as I was reading this, I was reminded of, of, of a class I taught last spring, which uh, titled Holocaust and Its Legacies, and, and, and we assigned Schindler's List. And for the first time that I can remember, no one in my class had seen it. Mm. I'd be curious. So, Have they all seen Inglorious Bastards? So. Um, many of them had, yes. But of course, they're all well, you know, way too young to have been the, of the age to see it when it came out, and it's now old enough that this is not something they see routinely. So maybe you can say something about how the Shoah Foundation emerged, um, and that how and, and how that impacted its goals. No, it was just on a side note, I've noticed I teach a course on film and the Holocaust, and I ask my students to raise their hand if they've seen Schindler's List, and very uh-huh. few have. And if yeah. you film about the Holocaust, most likely it's Inglorious Bastards. And even yeah. then, that's probably a, a bridge too far uh, for them. But uh-huh. how did the Shoah Foundation start? It started in the direct aftermath of the production, or really emerged out of the production of, of Schindler's List, in Krakow, where um, where where Steven Spielberg and his producer uh, Brunko Lustig, who is himself a survivor of many of many camps, um, and just a really singular figure, I had the privilege of, of, of meeting uh, Bronco Lustig and Steven Spielberg were approached by people who Jews from the community of Krakow, who and others survivors from from uh, other communities about documenting their stories and testimonies and the story goes and I don't know whether this is myth or truth because this was what Bronco Lustig told me was that on the plane back they had a debate about um, creating the what would then become the Shoah Foundation and trying to determine how many testimonies that they would record and Bronco Lustig recalled to me that 50,000 seemed like a reasonable figure given the budget that would be required. With that goal in mind, uh, the foundation started in the back lot of Universal Studios in a series of temporary structures and camping, yeah, not campers, but, uh, but uh, trailers, and uh, eventually migrated over to, conveniently to the uh, the campus of USC where it became a part of uh, the Division of Humanities. Uh, just as I was starting to do my archival research, it conveniently decided to spare me the trip of driving to Studio City. So that was good. And um, it, it became the largest archive of testimony of any kind in the world and still is, recording over 50,000 testimonies. Um, and its subsequent, you know, 
move to Rwanda and Guatemala and to documenting other genocides in other locations. Um, but it was from the outset um, a very Spielbergian um, project, one in which um, Spielberg as a filmmaker was really not less through his money than through his prestige driving the process. And in many ways, also as, as a classic Hollywood filmmaker in many ways, um, who's invested in the three-act structure, that structure bled its way into um, the structure of the testimony collection. So unlike the Fortunoff Archive, and to a large extent unlike the Holocaust Museum, it has an extensive, over 40 pages of a pre-interview questionnaire, which is conducted over the phone, filled out over the phone between the interviewer and the interviewee. So there's an extensive pre-interview process. There's an extensive process of of um, asking the witness questions ahead of time and also using that pre-interview questionnaire as the index by which uh, they will catalog and index the survivor's testimony. So these testimonies were all digitized and they're available through a subscriber-based interface. But the notion was uh, that you'd be able to hyperlink, and you can, across different portions of the testimony based on that index, but the priority was given to the written pre-interview questionnaire, which was done before the testimony, so that if any aspect of the testimony contradicted that which was recorded on paper prior, that which was recorded on paper would serve as the basis for the index. So it's very much about establishing a clear what, when, and where, uh, almost a census-like litany of questions about name at birth, spelling of the name, the town in which you live, what was the Jewish community like of that town, where were certain things located, very much about establishing and pinpointing data. Um, and that's not to say that they're not rich testimonies. They're incredibly rich for many reasons. But just to differentiate in its methodology, this was one in which um, the interviewer, in stark contrast to the Fortune Up archive, tended to drive the process a great deal more than the interviewee. This was less about the agency of the witness and more about the agenda of the institution. That doesn't mean that survivors, in many cases, survivors are able to transcend that agenda, but it was a much more interventionist approach to testimony, whereby the interviewer wanted to get clear examples of what happened to you, what is your first-hand knowledge of this, what did, it, what did you see? In essence, using the testimonies to illustrate a pre-existing, pre-established historical record, more as exemplars, as illustrators of a history, rather than um, witnesses who would generate new knowledge. Coming back to Selma E., then maybe, maybe you can say something about how that impacted her testimony um, and the way you read her three or watch and interpret and, and understand the three testimonies um, put together. Yeah, I know. And, and just to reiterate, I mean, there actually were four testimonies precisely because... Mm, the, thank the, you. The, 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 because the third testimony that she gave at the Holocaust Museum was so interventionist, was so littered with questions that they had to redo it mm. uh, three years later. Um, the testimony that she gives uh, at the especially the initial one in 1995 at uh, the Shoah Foundation, is less equipped to deal with surprises, with spontaneity, with the emergence of what we talked about, uh, which is deep memory. 
it is it is a, a methodology that is geared uh, towards collecting common memory. What happened where, when, who is motivating what action. And so there are moments in Selma's testimony where, to use an example, when she talks about having been sexually assaulted, I have a suspicion that that wasn't even mentioned in the pre-interview questionnaire. And so the surprises that emerge during an interview, um, something as traumatic as sexual violence, the interviewer didn't know what to do with it. And there's this sense where transitivity takes over where it says, well, what happened then? Or can we move on into the next portion of the story? It's about keeping things on track. And so this, the testimony with Selma, while she's still the strong, assertive, and uh, indomitable Selma Engel that I had come to know in prior testimonies, at least in her testimonial form, she is curtailed or inhibited by the myriad of questions that are asked of her during that Shoah Foundation interview. And yet, and yet, in the final interview that she gives in 1998, and also that Chaim gives, she is joined by her granddaughter and her daughter to discuss, at the end, the inheritances of memory. And this is what is unique and what is, I think, the most valuable part of the Shoah Foundation is that they cover a lot more material on the... Uh, I mean, they have a system that wants interviewers to ask questions that will break down the interview into three acts, 40% for pre-war life, 60%, sorry, 20% for pre-war life, 60% for Holocaust era, and 20% for post-war life. Now, that 20%, while still small, is much more significant than any other aspect of post-war life covered or, or post-Holocaust life covered by the Fortunoff Archive or the Holocaust Museum. It is the only archive of those three to dedicate on a, on a, on a standardized, regular basis, time to the post-war era on a consistent basis and on a widespread basis. And it's precisely at that testimony of Selma and Chaim where her daughter, Elida, and Tegan, her granddaughter, come on screen and have a discussion, in essence, about what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, which is about post-memory, about the inheritances, the legacies of living in the shadow of the Holocaust as a daughter and granddaughter of survivors. And it's one of the most illuminating aspects of a testimony that I've ever watched. And it means that you have to stick around to the end at a moment which you think is going to be filled perhaps with mawkish sentimentality, is actually filled with uh, great insight and great honesty and great openness between three generations. And and while I perhaps sound as if I'm being critical of the Shaw Foundation, I'm incredibly um, in awe of the work that they've done in terms of the scale and also the fact that they've given voice to that after the Holocaust, that post-Holocaust life, which is unfortunately missing from a great deal of testimonies. And, and to have that kind of exchange, the exchange they have between Selma and, and Chaim and their daughter and granddaughter is, is incredibly unique. And I, and I wouldn't have been able to find that in any other archive. So, so we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, and, and there's lots of directions I could go kind of to, to wind this up. And I'm honestly fascinated by this idea you were sketching out earlier of, of, of the ways to use modern technology to allow survivors to continue to speak. But, but let me go a different way. 
Um, because I suspect many people who listen to this either attend or plan some kind of Holocaust memorial event. And, I'm, and, and that's a little bit different kind of testimony. Uh, many of these, of course, feature the testimony, feature survivors or, or their children sometimes. Um, so, so maybe, and I know I'm springing this on you. Um, I wonder what somebody who plans events with centered around survivors can learn um, from your research. One of the things you can learn is that no testimony is ever uh, given for the first time, or unless you're at this stage, um, that it's quite likely that even if it's the act of writing in a diary or the act of telling a friend or someone in the family, that, that what you're encountering when someone is giving their testimony has been encountered before, and the tendency might be to think that they have a rote approach to that particular um, performance, and, and that we not be afraid, by the way, to use terms like performance when we talk about Holocaust testimony, that it's not a, a dirty word when it comes to discussing, that, that actually there still is this strong ethical responsibility um, to listen carefully and attend to survivors and to realize that even if this isn't the first time that they've given this testimony, that there is, for many survivors, that documentary imperative, the imperative to survive, and you'll hear the stories of people in testimonies tell of that drive to survive in order to make sure that these stories are told. And, and perhaps that's become a cliche, but it's something that resonates with a great deal with a great many survivors and survivor communities, it's imperative to tell, and, and that imperative to make sure that that story is taken with you, and also that it that it impacts the world outside of the Holocaust. For me, whether or not a survivor is interested in, in creating some sort of linkage between their story and the story of, of a survivor of Cambodia or of Rwanda or of Darfur or of Bosnia or Armenia, or other genocides, um, I think those are linkages that are important to make. I think it's difficult for me to conceive of an event to commemorate and memorialize the Holocaust that doesn't also, in, in some indirect way even, draw, uh, draw our attention without even necessarily naming these other genocides because it depends on the context of whether that's appropriate, but to in essence prick our ethical consciousness um, our humanitarian consciousness to the suffering of others. Because ultimately, I think that's what is central to testimony in many respects, is the way in which it forges that contract between an interviewer and an interviewee and the future and anticipated audiences for those testimonies. That it, Not that it trains our ethical reflexes, because I'm not sure if that's possible, but at least it serves as a template or as a model for how we might listen and bear witness to the suffering of others. And so if there's a way that we can listen to and engage a Holocaust survivor at an event like the one that you're describing, in a way that, even if indirectly, somehow leads us to ask questions about the world outside of the Holocaust and the world outside of our respective communities and outside of the world of that respective event, 
then then I think that's truly productive. And I think that means whether that's turning to the to the work of someone like Michael Rothberg, um, who's written about multidirectional memory, or looking at the work of others like Martha Minow, who look from Harvard Law School, who looked at the ways in which we must kind of have a certain moral consciousness when we look at the Holocaust, but also beyond the Holocaust. I think that there's that need to at least create, if not a direct linkage, at least an underlying ethical linkage that connects us with the suffering of others beyond the Holocaust. That's a great place to end. It's a great book, Noah, um, and I hardly recommend it. Um, I have to say I'm, I'm a tiny bit intimidated by the, as, as a historian, by the time and the energy required to approach the interviews as critically and as thoughtfully as, as, as you suggest is necessary. Um, but I think you've made a convincing case for it. Um, and I always end by asking uh, people maybe to, to say, to suggest a, a, a something that you were moved by or you found important or, or I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but uh, what book or video or movie or, or, or what, what should I read this weekend or watch this weekend that was important to you while you were doing this research? For me, there's a Hungarian filmmaker by the name of Peter Forgash, F-O-R-G-A-C-S, um, and he he has been given a lot of attention um, in the documentary film circuit, but not nearly enough attention outside of that circuit. Um, and he's someone who I had the pleasure of studying and also meeting during graduate school at USC. Someone who not 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 Jewish, um, a performance artist. Um, Initially, someone who was doing fine arts in Hungary, um, someone who my mentor Michael Renoff has has written about at length. And this is a filmmaker is really interesting because he he makes films, at least many of his films are made exclusively using archived found footage. And one film that he made called The Maelstrom is about uh, a Dutch Jewish family, um, and we see through the home movies that were preserved by one surviving member of the family and which were you know, given to Peter Forgar and re-edited and recompiled with music and manipulation of some of the footage brought in. We see uh, the unfolding of the Holocaust from the family lens, so to speak, from the home movies that were collected during, uh, before, during, I should say before and during uh, Nazi occupation. And one of the images that stands out, and an image that I will always remember, is a piece of footage which was taken from the home movies of this family, of the family as they were preparing on the night prior to their uh, deportation uh, in their home, sewing the Jewish star in their clothing, making last-minute preparations. And though they didn't know their fate, precisely because perhaps they didn't know their fate, that there's something about the home movie footage that captures, yes, some of the anxiety, but also the family's warmth and their joy at this moment in history before they knew what history would unfold for them. And the idea that, to use, 
to go back to what you said, that monuments and memorials and events can serve as forms of testimony, so too can these fragments of home movies, that these traces of traces, these traces of these individuals in their lives, um, that we not forget the lives that they lived in their homes, that we not only remember their deaths, but also that we remember their lives, and that found footage film, films that are taken from home movies, such as in the work of Peter Forgosh on his film The Maelstrom, which is admittedly hard to get a hold of, but if you contact the filmmaker Peter Forgosh, I'm sure he'll be more than happy to send you a link to it. It's it's one of the most powerful films about the Holocaust that I've seen, and perhaps one of the most powerful films of any kind that I've seen. Certainly one of the most singular films. So that would be on my list of films to, to look at. I will have to do that. Thank you. Um, what are you working on now? Um, right now I'm working on uh, a two main things. One is an, an article on Raul Hilberg and his and the outtakes that were taken. Um, that is to say, the over 200 hours of outtakes that were shot for a film that's nine and a half hours long. So it's a show. Yeah. So there's been a great deal of research, really rich research that's been done on on Club Onsman show, and now that's turning attention to the outtakes which have been housed and are housed at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So I'm contributing a volume that's on Shoah and which deals in large part with the outtakes. Um, and so a lot of the key questions that I've taken from my book about what happens that is left off the cutting room, or the, what, what, what in essence is left on the cutting room floor, what constitutes mar- the marginalia of a film, um, I'm looking at now with Hilberg's role uh, as as the quote unquote historian for Lanzmann's Shoah, so that's the project I'm currently completing. And then I've got the project that I'm collaborating with a colleague of mine on Pincus Guter, who is a survivor of uh, the Warsaw Ghetto, who not so long ago was uh, well, he gave testimony to the Shoah archive in the mid to late 1990s, and then a few years ago gave testimony to Stephen Smith, the head of the Shoah Foundation. Over 2,000 questions were asked of Pincus, and Pincus was rendered using dozens of cameras into a virtual form and using artificial intelligence. You can go to the Skokie Museum in Skokie, Illinois. You can go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and you can interact with Pincus in his full, almost, I should say, in his full-body form and ask him questions. And based on this artificial intelligence software, interact for better and for worse, with Pincus asking him a series of questions about his experience. So I'm talking about uh, the implications of quote-unquote holographic testimony, though again, it's, it's not really a holograph, but it, it emulates uh, kind of the holographic effect. So I'm writing on that as well. So most of my work is looking, and then having just recently published a piece on how a lot of the actual approaches that we talked about over the last hour or so that the, especially the Shaw Foundation came up with are now being utilized in places beyond. So I, I published a piece on the ways in which those, those testimony practices are being used in, in Cambodia to collect the testimony there. It's also being used in places like Rwanda, places like Guatemala. And so the, the ways in which these testimonial paradigms migrate from one genocidal context to another, and what are the implications of taking the Shoah Foundation model and applying it to these non-Holocaust case studies and raises a, a series of, of important questions. So those those are the three the three projects that are most current for me. That, 
that's fascinating. And, and um, I would love to have you on the show sometime again to talk about some of these things and, and pursue well, those. Thanks. Thanks, Kai. But, I really enjoy talking with you as well. It's really been a great pleasure. Excellent. Well, thanks again, um, and take care. You've been listening to an interview with Noah Schenker about his book, Reframing Holocaust Testimony. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when we conclude this summer's occasional series of podcasts that address the question of how genocides might be prevented or mitigated with an interview with Carrie Booth Walling. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.